What a privilege to gather with God's people again to sing his praises, to learn from his word, to hear testimony of what he has done. You always love when someone shares their testimony, whether it's through an officer candidacy or a baptism or some other context. It's, I always love as a dad that my kids get to hear that because you know, they, they, they see mom and dad, they know mom and dad, but to, to hear how God has worked in all of these other people's lives, that's, I think, such a priceless blessing for them to be able to hear. Uh, we, this morning, come to Exodus chapter 21, so if you would turn there with me in your Bibles. Exodus 21, we will be in verses 1 through 11. I hope that everyone has had a little time to recover from uh, our VBS, uh, just a little tiny bit of time. Uh, what an incredible week it has been, what an incredible week it was uh, in the life of our church. And I'll just say, what an overwhelming response from the volunteers here at Four Corners. You know, just such a, a blessing to be a part of a congregation where so many want to serve our children. And I want to thank all of you who so faithfully and tirelessly served this past week and gave up so much time, you know, uh, getting here in the morning uh, at 8, a little after, and then leaving 12.30 to 1. What a, what a massive chunk of your day, what a massive chunk of your week to give that time. And so many of our congregation giving that time to serving our kids. You know, I'll say this, as a dad of three kids, uh, I feel so blessed to be a part of a church uh, where there's such a desire to see our kids know and trust in the gospel. Uh, and I know that all of you who are parents here feel exactly the same way. It is such a blessing to be part of this church. Uh, over the last few months, we've worked our way through the Ten Commandments, and now we have come out on the other side of the Ten Commandments. And last week, we looked at the response to the giving of those commandments, and not just the words themselves. Uh, God did not just sort, sort of hand something off, but uh, it was accompanied by this incredible theophany uh, where God comes down in fire to his people. He reveals his glory, his power, his majesty to his people on Mount Sinai as he gives them his Law. So we have this, this incredible act of revelation and then the revelation itself, the words that come from the Lord to the people. And last week we looked at how the people responded and even more importantly how they should respond to God's revelation. And we looked at two big picture responses and there's a lot that we could say in terms of details about how we respond to God as he reveals himself and as we said last week as God reveals himself to us in the Bible that every time we open up the Bible it is as though we are there at the foot of Mount Sinai seeing the glory of God seeing his majesty and responding to him rightly so what is the the response of the people of God as they encounter God's revelation. And the first thing we looked at last week was reverent fear. Fear of God is a good thing. It is not something that should be cheapened or softened. It is not something uh, that should be done away with. It is not something that is at odds with his love, with his fatherliness, with his care. There is a healthy and right fear of God. 
And we saw that last week as we looked at Jesus' words, do not fear man who can destroy the body, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Well, he's talking to his disciples, and he is impressing upon them the, the importance of living out their faith and not caving when they face persecution. They may burn your body, they may tear your body, they may crucify your body, beat your body, but they cannot have your soul. God controls our souls and ultimately our bodies as well. So we ought not to ever dispense with this notion of fear of God. It is essential to Christian piety. It is all throughout the scripture among those who are in covenant relationship with God. But we see last week that it moves from a terror to a reverent fear of God, not a a terrified fear of God, but a reverent fear of God who knows him as Father, who knows him in covenant. And as we talked about last week, it is this fear of God that, that keeps us from sinning. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Fearing God keeps us from sinning. We see that with Jesus, as we said last week, how uh, when he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, plug it out, your hand to, tear, to, to cut it off. Jesus is not, he's speaking there hyperbolically. He's not telling us we should mutilate our bodies. What he's saying is that sin is so awful, sin is such a big deal, it is something so not to be taken lightly that we ought to do whatever it takes to not sin. And that is what it means to fear God. It is to hate evil. It is to hate evil with a passion. It is not to make peace with our sin. It is not to uh, fall into, well, God will, will forgive me, this sort of flippant view of our sin. It is not to coddle or pet our sin. It is to see it for what it is and to flee from it with all of our might. It is like Joseph in Egypt as Potiphar's wife comes to take hold of him, to lie with him, and he flees from her. That is what it looks like to fear the Lord. We also discussed how reverent fear is to seek a mediator, is to recognize God's holiness and our sinfulness, and it is to see the need for a mediator between God and man. And we see ultimately that that is not Moses, but it is Christ, that he is the one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, the God-man, incarnate deity. He is the one who acts as our high priest before the Father's face. He is our mediator and intercessor. And secondly, we looked at last week, right worship. Our number one response to God's revelation is reverent fear, and we also see tied together with this right worship. No idolatry, no human glory, no syncretistic religion. And that's what was going on in the passage from last week as as God commands his people how to make their altars with uncut stones and and to not come up upon the altar on steps that nakedness would be revealed and set in the backdrop of ancient pagan religion we recognize that the Lord is calling his people to be distinct to be holy to be unique among the peoples to not fall into some sort of syncretistic worship even if it is of Yahweh in name 
to not try to worship Yahweh by a golden calf or by building some sort of pagan temple to come to the Lord. No, worship must be God's way. It must be according to his word. We must worship according to scripture. It's not a blank slate. We don't get a blank slate when we uh, come to church and we think to ourselves, we don't sit around as elders and go, what would be fun this week? What would draw people this week? What would meet the affections of the culture? How can we bring excitement to our worship service? No, we ask the question, what does God say about how he ought to be worshipped? Regardless of what people might say or think. It comes from him. Reverent fear and right worship and right worship grows out of reverent fear. Today, we come to the beginning of what has been called the covenant code or the book of the covenant following the Ten Commandments. You could say that these are the practical outworking of the Ten Commandments. This takes those ten massive principles and it brings them down to the ground level. It gets down in the weeds with real human relationships and real human activities This is the outworking of the Ten Commandments. They are not comprehensive, but paradigmatic. In other words, what we have here are paradigms for justice in covenant relationship with God. Not a full-scale, comprehensive, every single instance where you would need some kind of legislation. You get it, but we have something here that gives paradigms. These rules or judgments, literally as they're translated in chapter 21, verse 1, are meant to serve as examples of how to apply these commandments in various situations. They are meant to guide the outworking of the Ten Commandments. And so they actually help us quite a bit as we come to them. We recognize that we are no longer under the law, and yet we see that the Spirit has written the law in our hearts, and and the law is what the Spirit is doing in us What we find in the book of the covenant or in these covenant codes is a little more clarity and specificity with regard to the Ten Commandments. Now there is disagreement over where this covenant code begins and ends. And anytime you come to a biblical passage, almost there's disagreement among scholars as to how to divide up the text and structure the text. Some say that it really starts with one or both of the little sections that we covered last week. But essentially, these laws cover chapters 21 to 23. So in our Bibles, basically three chapters of covenant codes. And they are bracketed by narrative material at the end of chapter 20 and at the beginning of chapter 24. So that's the section that we're moving into now. We're still very much in the court. We're still very much looking at law. And it begins with this narrative of God's glory and his majesty and his holiness. And it ends, of course, with this invitation narrative and this entering in, once again, this ratification of the covenant in chapter 24. And between those two narratives, we get this outworking of the Ten Commandments in chapters 21 to 23. So as we move into this legal material, we find that the first topic addressed is slaves or 
servants. Now, it's not typical to begin here uh, when you compare this with other ancient law codes. Uh, Slaves go at the end. Uh, But here, it's interesting that the Lord deals with these individuals first. And we'll talk about why that is shortly. These are the people whom we have already met in the fourth and tenth commandments. So you really shouldn't be shocked when you come to this passage, especially having gone through the Ten Commandments. We've already met male servants and female servants. So in the fourth commandment, chapter 20, verse 10, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your your male servant or your female servant. So we see there that part of God's command is that on the Sabbath day, there is to be rest entirely across the board for the entire household among all the people, and this would include the servants. It would give the servants an opportunity to rest, and even the animals. And then the 10th commandment, chapter 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant. So we've already been introduced to these folks. We've already been introduced to this phenomenon of servitude or slavery. And now we come to deal with it in the law code directly. So the title for the sermon this morning is Protecting the Vulnerable. And back to what I said before, what makes this law code unique in the ancient world is that it it puts the protection of these vulnerable, or you could say disadvantaged individuals, it puts the protection of them at the very beginning. And of course, that makes perfect sense given the fact that the Israelites just experienced centuries of being in that very situation as slaves in Egypt. So the title is Protecting the Vulnerable. This first section of the law code, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, focuses on ensuring protection and justice for those who have fallen into the vulnerable state of slavery or servitude. So if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. This is, this is very foreign material. I know it's, it's, it's hard for us in our context. We'll talk about that a little as we, as we move on this morning Uh, It's hard for us to take in these verses, hard for us to know how to approach them. Uh, But this is one of the great things about expository preaching is you just don't get to skip stuff, right? So you you just keep rolling. I remember thinking that. Uh, when we were going through Genesis and we came to Lot and his daughters. We had just come to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is hard enough, but then you have Lot and his daughters, and that was, I think, even more challenging. Uh, but we must take on all of the text, and that includes also the genealogies and every other portion. So here we are, Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of God. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, and buy or acquire a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone." But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. 
Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So you can go ahead and be seated. It's not John 3.16, but it's very much part of God's word. So we're going to see what, how, how we are to wrap our minds around what we read here. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for uh, your word, for all of it. We thank you for how your word shows your glory, uh, how it shows your justice and your care. Uh, just as you will later say regarding orphans and widows that if Orphans and widows are mistreated, that you will come after the evildoer with a sword. Father, we recognize that you are the great vindicator, the great defender. You are the one who cares for those who are in need, those who are in a state of plight or difficulty, Lord. And as we think about that this morning, I pray that we would come to you with all of our difficulties, with all of our vulnerability. Lord, and we would find you as our great defender, as our great, loving, caring, heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for teaching us your wisdom. We thank you for uh, your justice, God, which will reign over the earth in a perfect, non-fallen world one day in the new heaven and new earth where there will be no such applications of your justice in this way, Lord, where there will be no sin in which to apply justice. There will be no fallenness in which justice must be established, Lord, but it will be perfect justice, perfect peace, perfect righteousness. Lord, we long for that day. We look forward to that day, and we thank you that you have put hope for that day in each of our hearts as Christians. We pray, Lord, that we would put on the helmet of the hope of salvation as all the kids talked about this week, Lord, that we will be those who are protected from the evil one in our minds. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it this morning to build us up in our faith, to show us who you are in your character, to show us the glory of Christ, to convict us of sin, and to help us, Lord, to flee from all immorality, Lord, to seek refuge in you, to rest in Jesus Christ, and to seek to serve him as our great master. We love you, Father. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So this section is clearly divided into two parts. So if you look up here on the screen, we have the two parts to this passage. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. So first, the male servant kept temporarily, and for that we'll look at verses 1 to 6. And then secondly, the female servant acquired for Marriage, And let me just say this, it's very difficult to figure out how to translate uh, these words because they, they really do, that there's a lot of uh, 
movement and fluidity in the Old Testament between the idea of a worker and an employee and a servant and a slave. There's, there's just so much fluidity between these words in ancient society and in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and so that's the reason why the very same words in the Ten Commandments that I read to you earlier are translated servant, male servant and female servant. Here, those very same words translated slave. So there's movement here in how we understand the translation of these words. So first, the male servant kept temporarily. Second, the female servant acquired for marriage. So let's look first at the male servant. Look at verses 1 to 6 with me again. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave or servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. And he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Slavery. Slavery. This is a topic that none of us likes to consider that none of us really likes to talk about, and yet it was a normal part of life across the ancient world. There, without exception, this was a normal part of societies, of civilizations, all throughout the ancient world. In Canaan, where the Israelites were going, out of Egypt, where they had come from, out of Mesopotamia, where Abraham had come from, Throughout the ancient world, as uh, the history of Israel progresses, and in the Greco-Roman world, later, all the nations, Assyria and Babylon and all the others, practiced slavery. Let me share a quote here from one commentator, Dwayne Garrett. He says this, For us, the greatest difficulty is that slavery should be allowed in the Old Testament at all. We should recall, however, that slavery, such as described here, was a way of dealing with problems such as severe indebtedness and poverty. In other words, it had a social function. By slavery, a poor person could have shelter and food. No one would claim that the life of these slaves was easy, and the laws make clear that slaves did not have the status and rights of free persons. But it was not the same as, for example, the slavery that existed in pre-Civil War America, where people were kidnapped from their homes by slave traders, crammed into ships, and taken away to toil for the rest of their lives in a foreign land. That kind of slavery is strictly forbidden in the Bible. And you ask, well, how so? How is that sort of slavery strictly forbidden in the Bible? Well, he, he then cites Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, which we'll come to soon. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in, his, in possession of him shall be put to death. 
So the death penalty there for anyone who would kidnap a person, which is pre-Civil War uh, slavery, as you think about the slave trade between, uh, with Europe and with the Americas, uh, this was, of course, a form of kidnapping, which under God's law would have been punishable by death. So it, it's very hard for us in the United States in particular with slavery being so, so near to us historically, really, if we think about the number of generations between the time when slavery existed in this country and now, it's very difficult for us, and especially for some of the racially charged uh, political stuff that's going on in our society today. It's very difficult for us to come to a passage like this, but there's a sense in which we must move out of our context in order to understand more broadly what is going on in order to understand the way in which ancient societies worked and functioned, the way work was often accomplished, but also to consider, as we see here from this quote, the way in which slavery provided and servitude provided for those who were in these extreme situations of poverty. In this opening passage, we are dealing with a fellow Hebrew That's the specific form of slavery, and that wasn't the only form, but here we're dealing with a fellow Hebrew, one who has likely sold himself into slavery due to poverty, or as uh, Garrett says, extreme indebtedness. So this person becomes an indentured servant, essentially, and everything here is applied to female Hebrews as well in Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. And so as was read earlier, as Daniel read to us earlier, in Deuteronomy 15, 12, we see that uh, what we're reading here also applied to a female servant who would come in for six years and then be released. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 39 to 40 comments on this. It says, if your brother becomes poor... Beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. So he's he sold, he's bought, but he is not to be treated as a slave per se. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. And then dropping down in Leviticus 25 to verses 42 to 43, speaking of these. Slaves, these servants of the Lord says, for they are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. In other words, as any master has this servant or this slave, the watching eyes of the slave redeemer are present. The watching eyes of the one who rescued his Hebrew people out of Egyptian bondage into freedom is watching this servitude, watching the conduct of the master. And we see even in the New Testament where Christian slave owners are addressed by Paul the same sort of application here and how they treat their servants. And of course you have the epistle of Philemon where Paul is uh, basically uh, in, a, in a direct way saying uh, that he wants uh, another Christian brother's slave freed uh, so that he can be of service to him in the work of the gospel. A fellow Hebrew is not to be treated like a captive of a war or a foreign slave. They are to be treated as those whom God redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. 
And so that's the context of what we're looking at here. And we'll get other slave laws later, particularly what happens if a a slave is struck and he loses his eye or loses a tooth. What happens if a a slave is struck and dies? What happens if a slave is is struck and lives for a few days but then dies? Uh, These are some of the things that we'll encounter as we go through these law codes. Part of what this means is for, for the slave holder to treat the slave in the right way before God's eyes, part of what this means is that they are to serve for only six years. And here we see the Sabbath principle at work. We've already run into the Sabbath in terms of the rhythm of the week of the Hebrew people, that six days they would do all of their work, and on the seventh day they would rest. It would be a Sabbath to the Lord, and there would be a rest. Well, that same principle is applied to servitude or slavery in the case of a fellow Hebrew. He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So his time in this service is limited. Ownership of his time is temporary, not permanent. He is to be set free at the end of the six years. And even more, when the Hebrew servant or slave goes out free, he is to be well provided for. Now, this is interesting. This is, this is quite a passage here. As we think about uh, slavery and this person is freed, you would think that giving them their freedom after this period of time of only six years would be enough. But here we read in Deuteronomy 15, verses 13 to 15, how much they are to be cared for. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed, You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock. Not just furnish him, but furnish him generously or liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this Day And here we see an emphasis on empathy. And I think that's important as we think about how we relate to other human beings. Now, the Hebrews are to remember what it is like to be slaves, what it is like to be servants, what it was like to be ruthlessly beaten and treated by the Egyptians, what it was like to, to not have the provisions that are necessary, what it was like to have ten plagues have to take place before they are released. So we see here the empathy with which they are to regard their servants. We also see here the care and justice of the Lord. Instead of exploitation, there is to be help and provision. And it is to be abundant provision. They are to go out, not just with the the meager necessities, but they are to go out abundantly provided for so that they can receive a fresh start. But what about the slave's family? This is where it gets a little icky for us as we read this. What about the slave's family? What if he enters into slavery married? Or what if his master permits him to marry while he is in this state of servitude? Well, here the law is concerned with protecting both the slave and the master. If the slave comes in married, he leaves married. And by extension with his children. And this, of course, goes back to the one flesh relationship in Genesis 2. And what we could say as we read this passage is that marriage is very much being upheld. The importance of marriage, its significance, it is traced back to Genesis 2 where the first marriage occurs, where God creates 
Eve from the rib of Adam and brings Eve to Adam. Brings Adam his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But we recognize here that it is different if one of his master's servants is given to him in marriage. Now keep in mind, this is the picture of two servants. One given to the other servant to be his wife. In this case, the master still retains his rights over the female servant. The freedom of one does not obliterate the servitude of the other. Whether she is a fellow Hebrew serving a limited number of years, and that might be the case. Maybe this, this master has a female servant who is Hebrew serving six years and a male servant serving six years. But maybe this person is a foreign slave who is there permanently. Either way, the master still retains his rights over the female servant. The servant himself is free at the end of his period of service, but he may not freely take the one who was freely given to him in marriage. The master did not have to give his servant to his other servant in marriage, but he does. And that relationship is to be respected. And yet, we see here that a provision is made for him to retain his family. So look at verses 5 to 6 again. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So here we see that the the servant has a choice. He can leave with his freedom, or he can stay and have his family. And as we think about what was written there in Deuteronomy, what would come later in Deuteronomy, we recognize that when he says, I love my master, that in the right kind of environment, the, the slave owner, the, the master, would be someone who is treating his slave, as we saw earlier, as a sojourner or a hired worker. What we see is a, a relationship that could develop in which The slave not only wants to cling to his wife and his children, but also his master. And what we find here, this ceremony, it is a way of making the commitment public. On the surface, it protects the master. Now think about this for a second. On the surface, it protects the master by ensuring that the servant is now marked as his permanent servant. So on the surface, that's what's in view. The the master's rights are to be retained. But we need to recognize that it also protects the servant. How so? Well, only by carrying out this public ceremony before the judges or the magistrates or before the priests, and there's some debate over whether the word here for God is actually judges or magistrates, uh, the majestic ones or those with authority, the powerful ones, or if it's a reference to God. Either way, we're meant to understand that this public ceremony would have taken place before The leaders. And as it is carried out before the leaders, only by carrying out this public ceremony can the servant be retained beyond his six years. 
It also ensures that his wife and children cannot later be taken from him. They are officially his. And so we think about the mark in the ear. And by the way, the marking of the ear probably denotes the the obedience and the hearing of the servant to his master. That he is now to hear his master and obey his master permanently. But as we think about this mark on the ear, we think, okay, that's a, that's a branding on that servant for the sake of the master, but it's also a branding on the servant for the sake of the servant's family because it is by that mark that he demonstrates his right to retain his family. They are officially his. In exchange for his permanent commitment to his master who has freely given him a wife. So what we see here, this is hard for us. We read it and we go, what in the world is this? Right? It's difficult. It's challenging. But the way we are to consider this and think about this is that this is protection and provision in the midst of the human conventions of a fallen world. We see this with Jesus in Matthew 19 as he refers to divorce. There were laws in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy regarding divorce, where uh, divorces were allowed and there were certain stipulations that were given for how those were to be conducted to provide for and to protect the vulnerable in the context of that fallenness, in the context of that situation, not in Eden. And so we see in Matthew 19, verses 7 to 8, After Jesus talks about the the binding permanency of marriage, they say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus is saying that marriage is permanent. And they're saying, well, why is it in the law that Moses permitted it? The law permits it. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, in the context of human sinfulness, this practice is permitted, though it is not God's ideal for humankind. Though it is not the way that God intended it, it is part of fallen society, and therefore God governs it with his justice to protect those who could be exploited or mistreated. The same is true regarding slavery. Not part of God's perfect plan, of course. Had humankind never fallen, there would have never been slavery. For that matter, there would have never been poverty. There would have never been so many things for which we find laws given here in the law of the Lord. So I think Uh, To go back to Matthew 19, in a sense, this is the, the key that unlocks for us how it is that we can read the Old Testament and read God's law and find something like this in which God is governing the practices regarding slaves. The same is true. An analogy is there regarding divorce. So secondly, we come to the female servant acquired for marriage. And for this, we go to verses 7 through 11. Let's look there. When a man sells his daughter as a slave or servant, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Or understand that to be she shall not go free as we just read about with the the male slaves. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right 
to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Well, this is certainly not an easy passage. This is certainly not an easy passage to read, especially if you are a daughter or the father of a daughter or daughters. In any sentence that begins with, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, causes us to recoil in sadness and moral disgust and outrage. This is not the sort of sentence that's going anywhere good as far as we are concerned. But before we get into the details, listen to this quote from John McKay as he reflects on this passage. It's a very challenging passage. The regulations regarding female servants reflect a society where women were not accorded the same personal rights as men. In looking at this situation from a modern Western point of view, we must be careful not to judge too harshly or by alien standards. What is set out here accords to the woman involved a considerable degree of protection from abusive and oppressive treatment. And that's what we find as we read this, that the the emphasis falls on the, the protection of this woman. The emphasis here falls on her not being exploited, her not being just dragged through society, her not being just used and thrown away. So once again, just as with the last passage, as we read this, we see very much within the fallenness of humanity, God's law is governing that which is already fallen. The context here is also one of marriage. This female servant is being acquired for marriage purposes. I think that is clear from the text. And One commentator, D. Uh, T. Desmond Alexander says this, that this passage addresses the situation of a girl who is sold on the understanding that she will become a wife in due course. The sale of the girl is probably prompted by a financial crisis within the family. Because she has been acquired for marriage, she does not leave after six years as a normal female servant would. So uh, we see a difference here as we go to Deuteronomy 15 where male and female servants who are acquired under normal circumstances are freed after six years as we talked about before. But in this particular situation, the woman is acquired for marriage. And the sale of the girl is probably prompted by a financial crisis within the family. So once again, uh, it is difficult for us to think of, of such destitution and such poverty that would exist in which a daughter would be sold into this kind of servitude. But it helps when we understand that this would be for the purpose of marriage. And D- Douglas Stewart, another commentator, remarks this. He says, by way of background, we note that all marriages in ancient Israel were arranged. Someone sold the bride to the groom for a bride price. 
And so we need to recognize that as we read this, it, it, it's, it's closely aligned with marriage practices in general uh, in the ancient world in which there was a bride price for the bride and the bride was given in marriage. Here the language is sold and not given and hence the emphasis on this individual being a servant. So here we see a unique situation of poverty where daughters are sold into servitude, but with an expectation of marriage. Not that they could be used as one pleased or exploited, but that they would become part of another family. The situation here is like what we find with Zilpah and Bilhah in Genesis 30. So, so for those of you who can rewind back far enough, it's been a little while now, uh, you, you can rewind far enough back to Genesis, we remember the craziness of Jacob's family. And you remember that Jacob goes, he flees his brother, I mean it's crazy from beginning to end, he flees uh, from his brother, his mother Rebecca sees to him being able to go uh, to his uncle Laban, he gets there and Laban employs him. And gives him uh, his daughter, at least in theory, he's to work seven years to receive uh, the daughter he loves, Laban's daughter he loves, Rachel. And at the end of seven years, Laban tricks him and gives him Leah. But Jacob wanted Rachel. And so Rachel is given as well. Well, then when it comes time, they start having children And Rachel can't have children. Leah can. So Leah starts having children. And she's just going at it. She's really having a lot of children. And Rachel's having zero. And so Rachel takes her maidservant, her female servant, just like here, and gives her Bilhah over to Jacob to to have children in her stead. And, And this, of course, can be traced all the way back to Abraham. We remember Abraham doing the same in Genesis 16 with Hagar the Egyptian maidservant. Sarai owns Hagar. She gives Hagar to Abraham as a, as a surrogate so that Abram can have a child through her and that child be, in a legal way, Sarah's. Well, what we find going back to Bilhah and Zilpah is that Rachel gives Bilhah over to Jacob and Jacob begins to have children through Bilhah. And then Leah sees what's going on, and she says, well, hold on a second. I can have even more children if I give my maidservant to my husband. And so then Zilpah comes into the picture. This is Leah's maidservant, and she gives Zilpah over to Jacob. And so he starts having children with Zilpah. And then at the end of the story, we see that Rachel begins to bear children, one Joseph, and then secondly, as she is dying, she gives birth to Benjamin. And so what we find there is that Jacob ends up with four wives. Two of them, all of them are called his wives, this is important, but two of them are the same word used here. Two of them are maidservants whom Jacob technically owns, who these women, his first two wives, technically own, and yet what we find is that these women are also Jacob's wives. They effectively become his wives, and each of their children become full heirs of Jacob. And so we see at the end of Genesis, when Jacob is giving out this inheritance to all of his sons, he speaks to each of the sons as a son. He has 12 sons, and each of those sons has the right of a son, even those who came through Bilhah and Zilpah. 
So that's a context that we need to have in view. You need to go back if this is really blowing your mind and rocking you, maybe even rocking your faith here. Go back to Genesis 30 and look at these passages to try to put this in context and understand what is going on within these ancient societies. So that's some important background, but now let's look at the details of our passage And I want to focus in on the ways in which the law protected such a woman caught in this vulnerable position. Remember the title of the sermon today, Protecting the Vulnerable. That's what these 11 verses are about. From beginning to end, they are about God in his love and in his care, in his compassion, in his mercy. The same love, care, compassion, and mercy that brought the Israelites out of slavery. We see God caring for these people who otherwise would just be trampled on by society. I want to focus in on the ways in which the law protected such women. So... Let's look at that as we look at the passage. So if he changes his mind, so this master has purchased, uh, has acquired this woman for himself, for his family, for his son, as we'll look at in a moment. But uh, let's say that he changes his mind. He decides that she's no longer pleasing to him for whatever reason. Uh, Maybe uh, he thinks that she's just flawed in her character. Maybe he just realizes he doesn't like her as much as he thought he did or she's not as appealing to him as he originally thought. The master or husband must have her redeemed and not to a foreign people, likely back to her family. She's not just to be sold as chattel. She's not just to be sent off, thrown off to whomever. Likely she will be redeemed by her family assuming that the family has been able to make some financial progress and be able to redeem her if she is not to become integrated into this new family as a wife. Verse 9, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. So she's not to be treated as a second-class family member. If she's given to the man's son, the master's son, as a wife, then it is to be understood that she is a daughter-in-law. She is to be treated as a daughter just as all of that father's daughters are treated and just as all of that father's other daughters-in-law are treated, irregardless of the fact that she was a purchased servant. She is made fully a part of the family. Verse 10 If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And the marital rights are there so that she would be able to have children. She's not just to be put off in a a corner somewhere. Say, uh, this person purchases another female servant or, or marries, enters into a marriage. This individual is not to just be pushed over to the side and given the scraps of the table. She is to be afforded food and clothing and her marital rights in order that she might have children who can care for her, as one commentator put it, in her old age. So he is not to throw her away. She receives the rights of a wife. She is treated like the other wives. And so, of course, now you're hearing me use wife in the plural for one person, and you're thinking, what in the world? Once again, we got a problem. And, of course, we do have a problem because this is not the way God intended it. God intended marriage to be one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve, together for life. 
Polygamy is a distortion, it's a perversion, it's a twisting. And in the Bible, the first act of polygamy that we get is from Lamech, who comes from Cain. This person takes to himself multiple wives. And we see he's a violent person. He is an unjust person. He's a murderous kind of person. He doesn't care for human life. That's the context in which polygamy uh, emerges in human society. And once again, as with divorce and as with servitude, here we see also with polygamy. God graciously gives, gives his law in which people in that situation are protected. And we remember uh, the situation with Leah and Rachel, that Jacob loves Rachel more, and so God opens Leah's womb so that she can have children. But then we see that God shows compassion to Rachel after Leah's had so many children that God opens Rachel's womb and she has children. So God not only governing the situation, but working intimately in the brokenness of the situation to carry out his purposes and to show his compassion. This is the character of God. So before you start throwing things at God because this is in his law, consider what this tells us about the Lord's character. Consider what this tells us about his love. And consider what this tells us about our need for a savior. Given how broken human society is, that such laws would even be needed. Verse 11, and if he does not do these three things for her, he, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, if he mistreats her, if he wrongs her, she must be vindicated. She must be defended. And, and that shows that this is not just a, a mere slave treated as however the master would choose to treat her. If she does not receive her food, and her clothing, and her marital rights, then she shall go free for nothing and no longer be in her master's home. Freedom and without payment. This master has certain responsibilities to her that must be kept or she is to go free. So this is... A passage, as we come now to the end, this is a passage that's difficult to sort of work through. It, it, it involves a lot of background. It involves some sort of ethical thorniness that, that causes us to bristle. And from a modern standpoint, as Americans here, uh, also the slavery issue is very difficult for us to step out of our context and see it as it functioned in the ancient world and not as it has functioned historically as we think about the slave trade uh, that gave rise to so many racial tensions in the United States. What I want to do now as we end is I want to just consider this one thing for us all in terms of God's providence, in terms of God's governance of the world. How is it that slavery ever existed in the world in the first place? Couldn't God have prevented slavery? Couldn't God have so governed the world in such a way that slavery would not exist? Well, let me say this to all of us. Our understanding of the gospel presupposes an understanding of slavery. Uh, we have no uh, deep understanding of gospel language like redemption and ransom and freedom. 
We have no understanding of what it is that Christ came to do without a mental framework for understanding slavery. What God has done in his providence is he he has allowed slavery to to be a part of human society. Uh, Human sinfulness, not part of his ideal, but it helps us all to understand the nature of humankind under sin. We can look at a slave situation and we can say, that's it. That's what it's like to be in Adam. That's what it is like to be a human being. Uh, the truth is that we're all born slaves. We're all born slaves of sin. And we come to understand that as we hear the gospel. We come to understand that as we consider what slavery is and how it has played out in the ancient world. We are, we are slaves of sin, death, and hell, and the devil. We are enslaved until Christ sets us free. And then listen to this. Our new relationship with Christ is also one of slavery in which Christ owns us. He purchased us. He redeemed us. He ransomed us. And now we serve him as his slaves forever. Slaves who are treated in the most incredible way that we reign with him. That we are given eternal delights in the presence of the Father. That this master laid down his life to save his slaves, to save his servants. So what I'm, what I'm putting before us is just this, that the whole system of salvation, the whole reality of the gospel, the whole story of the Bible centers On the idea that we are enslaved to sin and freed from that slavery to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's what, as slaves of Jesus here this morning... That's what we have to look forward to. Praise God for this slavery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you even for these challenging passages as they show us, uh, they point us to the gospel. They point us to your character, Lord. And we see your mercy in coming uh, to us in the person of your son. You, You came to us, Lord, and you redeemed us from this state of slavery. You you saw us with compassion. You saw us with merciful eyes and you came to us. Jesus, you entered into our world. You became man. You took on the form of a man and you went to death, even death on the cross in order that you might liberate us from our enslavement to sin. Father, we praise you that you've been so gracious to us. And we thank you for teaching us uh, about uh, your character, about your compassion, your mercy, your grace, your justice. We thank you, Father, that you governed your people within their fallenness. And it pointed them all along to the need for a Savior. God, we thank you that that Savior has come. And we bow before King Jesus this morning. We, we, we call out to Jesus as Lord. We recognize, as the apostles did, that we are slaves of Jesus Christ. May we go where he sends us. May we do 
what he calls us to do. May we refrain from what he calls us to refrain from. May in holiness of life, we be those who worship you in reverent fear and with the worship that you call for in your word. Thank you for this time now to engage in the Lord's Supper, which is uh, outlined for us in the Bible. We thank you, God, that you have given us this symbol, this picture of the gospel. And we pray now that we would celebrate it with pure hearts, with confession of sin, with examination of our hearts. Uh, Lord, before you in good conscience and considering all that you have accomplished for us through the finished work of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.